And does Dred Scott create the Civil War? I think Dred Scott is, if you will pardon the allusion to the House Divided speech, the final nail. Or at least, not the final nail, one of the final nails. Because Dred Scott's 57. By then, people are really hot under the collar. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the Supreme Court and served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. And a word of warning, I'm switching up the format as we're halfway through this podcast season. Prior episodes began with some legal news of the week, and I'm going to break that out into some separate, small, snack-sized podcast episodes for you. I've been hearing feedback from many of you, and you point out the interviews about the Supreme Court cases are going to live on for years, and the legal news will be a bit dated otherwise. So we're going to get right into it on SCOTUS today, and I am thrilled to talk to you about Dred Scott with the unparalleled Professor Heather Cox Richardson. A reminder that all my episodes are posted over at neilcatial.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff. You can also support the show there or sign up for free so that each episode of Quartzide lands right in your email. That's neilcatial.substack.com. On my Substack each week, you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-pager, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided the full decision. All of that is available to you as a paid subscriber. I'm donating all my profits to charity, but production of this thing costs quite a bit, and I'm not running any ads at all on this podcast. We are entirely listener-supported, so please do sign up at neilcatial.substack.com. My guest this week is the brilliant historian Heather Cox Richardson. Heather is a professor of American history at Boston College, where she specializes in the 19th century, which turns out to be perfect for our discussion today. She's written six books, which is five more than me, and her seventh book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, is coming out very soon, this September, in fact, and it promises to be a must-read. Heather is also the queen of Substack, showing everyone how it's done. Her newsletter, Letters from an American, is essential reading. And if all that weren't enough, she's also part of the duo in Now and Then, a podcast about American history and its relevance to today. And she does that podcast with my dear friend, Joanne Freeman. Heather, I'm so excited. Welcome to Courtside. Well, thank you for having me. It's going to be fun. So today we're talking about Dred Scott versus Sanford, which is widely viewed as the Supreme Court's worst decision ever. That's not an exaggeration. The decision was vicious in its racial prejudice. It had bogus legal reasoning, perverted facts and history. As one Northern newspaper wrote at the time, its rulings were wicked and inhumane. So before we get to the decision itself, Heather, I'd love to draw on your knowledge as a historian. Can you set the stage a little bit? So the case is handed down in March of 1857. That's obviously a pretty critical point in American history. Slavery was a key issue of the day. A civil war is brewing. There's sectional tensions between the North and South. 
What's important to know and what should we keep in mind as we move into the decision? I'm so glad you asked that because the the interesting thing for a historian about the Dred Scott decision is the degree to which it encapsulates an entire era and the entire way that people in the United States thought about American history. So to understand Dred Scott, you need to go back to, I hate to do it to you, but to 1820. Because in 1820, the Southern states in that year said they would no longer permit Northern states to join the United States unless there was a Southern state to go along with it, because they had already lost a majority in the House of Representatives. And the only way they believed that they could hold on to power in the national government was by having power in the Senate, by making sure they had control of the Senate. So in 1820, there was an incredibly vital move afoot, and that was to add the most important state in the Union to the United States, and that, of course, is the state of Maine. Well, when this, <laughs> I wondered if I'd get you on that one. Um, Maine wanted to come into the Union, and Southerners said, ain't happening unless you bring in a Southern state as well. So the Congress agreed to bring in Maine accompanied by Missouri, And at the same time, they drew a line across the bottom of the state of Missouri on the 3630 line. That's what that is. But across the bottom of Missouri and said everything above this line in the territory of Louisiana, which the United States had acquired in 1803, is going to be a free state. And everything below this line can be a state that allows enslavement. Now, it's important to remember that that's not just the state of Louisiana. Essentially, if you took the original 13 colonies and folded them over, that would be the Louisiana Territory. It's a huge, huge chunk of land. It's not a constitutional amendment. It's only a law. But everybody after the Compromise of 1820 pretty much thinks of it as a constitutional amendment. This is the way it's going to be. This land is going to be slave states below the line and free states above the line. And they limp along with the Missouri Compromise from 1820 forward. We're good, right? But something crucial happens in 1848. And the reason I just made such a big deal about the Louisiana Territory is that in 1848, the United States acquires another enormous chunk of land from Mexico. And that's the entire body of land that is now the American Southwest and West that made up the land that we we acquired from Mexico under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The Missouri Compromise Line does not cover that giant hunk of territory. Okay, so now I've set this whole thing up. The reason that we get to a crisis in the 1850s is because There's a move to put a railroad across the country to get to California that is now United States territory and that has gold in it. And so people are rushing into California and senators, a certain senator in Illinois wants that line to go through Chicago and not through the South. The problem was that the North had not settled the upper part of their territory that they acquired under the Missouri Compromise Line. So what Stephen Douglas did in 1854 is he said, I know what I'll do. I will go ahead and organize that territory because you can't run a railroad through unorganized territory. And this is, of course, Lakota and Dakota land at this point and Crow land. And he says, I'm going to organize that and and we'll just be able then to put the Transcontinental Railroad through Chicago and then through these Western these Northwestern territories. 
And Southerners say, not having it. We're not going to go ahead and let Northern states come in. And, and we don't have any more land to make states out of under the Missouri Compromise. So in 1854, Stephen Douglas, a senator from Illinois, puts forward a new law called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and that takes all the land that the North had not settled under the Missouri Compromise and divides it in half and says in the, the, the northern piece of this land, Nebraska Territory, which is giant, this is going to become land that's a number of states now, that large territory of Nebraska And the smaller territory, but still huge, below it of Kansas, the settlers who live there can decide whether or not they're going to have slavery. And the understanding was that the, the upper territory, Nebraska, would be free and the lower territory, Kansas, would be slave. But both of those lines were above the Missouri Compromise. So this law was simply going to get rid of the Missouri Compromise, a compromise that Northerners had lived with and believed was written into our fundamental law since 1820. So they pitch a conniption fit and they say there is no freaking way we're going to get behind the Kansas-Nebraska Act. That's when when uh, Douglas jokes that he can travel from Washington to Illinois by the light of his own burning effigies. <laughs> but That law passes in 1854 because the president, who's a Democrat, puts enormous pressure on Congress to pass it. When that happens, the the fat is in the fire, if you will. Northerners are furious at the overturning of the Missouri Compromise, and Southerners are like, hey, it's a law. We're good now. We're good to go. And so this is going to really ignite the sectional tension. But the, the, if this is the background and the fighting is getting bad, I mean, people are fighting in Kansas. This is when we have bleeding Kansas. We, you know, there's, there's all kinds of real struggles going on after the passage of the Kansas Nebraska Act in, in spring of 54. But the Southerners and the, the large enslavers primarily who really push this law start to say, Hey, wait a minute here. We are only doing what is true American democracy. We're saying the people on the ground get to vote. They get to decide on whether or not they're going to have slavery. And in December of 1855, the president, Franklin Pierce, gives a state a message to Congress in which he completely rewrites American history and says, in fact, when the founders wrote the Declaration of Independence and then when the framers wrote the Constitution, they deliberately created a white man's republic. Said so we were never supposed to be created equal. That was just that just was a was fancy language to say white guys run everything. And when he does that, this is 55, by 56, northerners of both parties go ballistic and they say that is not what the United States is all about. The United States literally means all men are created equal. And what they're really concerned about is the idea that if, in fact, local people can decide what's, whether there's going to be enslavement in those territories, both in the, um, the, the territories that were covered by the Missouri Compromise, but then also the new ones that have come in under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, if that's the case, as soon as anybody brings a single enslaved person out there, the large enslavers are arguing, 
the government is going to have to protect enslavement there because it's property, right? That's what what enslaved people are in this period. And what's going to happen is all this giant, giant piece of land is going to become slave states, slave territories, and then slave states. They are going to overawe the free states in not only then the Senate, but also the House of Representatives. They're going to control the president And they are going to make the United States of America a system based in human enslavement. That's the scene in 1856 when we start to hear at a national level about the Dred Scott decision. And wow, um, I've taught Dred Scott probably 20 times in constitutional law. I've always, I've just realized, made the mistake of beginning with the facts of the case instead of that brilliant history, because it really does help you understand what the case is about. So thank you. That's very, very valuable context. So, you know, you've got, you've given us the outline to 1856 and Dred Scott really reaches the Supreme Court then in, in 1856. So he's a African-American man. He's born into slavery in the early 1800s and his owner in 1834 took him to a military base in the free state of Illinois And then he was later brought to Fort Snelling, which is now Minnesota. And under the Missouri Compromise that you were just talking about, Heather, slavery was prohibited in these areas. And so he's living in years for a couple of years in places in which he has, which he's free, and then others in which he had been enslaved. And in 1838, he's brought back to the state of Missouri where he continues to serve as a slave as though nothing has changed. And one of my questions for you, Heather, is just, I've always wondered this, how did that happen? Because if he were free when he was in what is now Illinois and Minnesota, how did he get brought back to slave territory? So you you should really actually not ask historians questions like this, because I'm (laughs) I'm fascinated by Fort Snelling, as you can tell. Um, The way it worked in the in this period, in the 1830s, when he is in in transit amongst all these places, is that uh, the state law from the state that an enslaver came from obtained wherever that person went. So, for example, if you were an enslaver in Virginia and you took your private maid with you to visit New York City, that did not make that private maid free. So the way the army figured stuff out was that if you were, in this case, an army surgeon, which is what Dr. Emerson was, the man who was who enslaved Dred Scott, he took Dred Scott with him to his postings. And in, again, what was then the territory of Wisconsin, but is now the state of Minnesota, Dred Scott travels with him. And while he is there, he meets a woman who is also enslaved, and they they have one child. They're going to have another child who's actually born in a free area, which is going to matter probably not to you and I now, but it actually matters in the way the case plays out. But so Fort Snelling, which is technically in an area that is that does not support enslavement, the army officers actually put in uh, vouchers for the the amount it costs them to have their enslaved people with them in those areas in a free state. Wow. So this is exactly why asking a story and the question is, is so helpful. So basically what you're saying is that 
You know, if you own slaves and you were in a southern state, you carried those laws with you as you traveled into the north. They were called sojourner laws. Yeah. So like if you're a service member today and you're serving in Europe, you can vote in your local election or something. You carry your ability to vote. Here it was obviously a much more grotesque version of that principle. You're carrying your property ownership um, with you. At the same time, though, Missouri had been operating under the doctrine that once someone is free, they're always free. And so state courts had reaffirmed that principle. So I guess you have a clash between these two kind of different um, conceptions of law. And that's what Dred Scott is, in a sense, challenging. He's bringing this lawsuit against his owner. He says, look, I've been in a free state and free territory for years, and so I'm therefore a free man. And he brings his case all the way up through the Missouri state courts. And I think many legal scholars at the time believed that Dred Scott was on solid footing. But in a rather shocking turn of events, the Missouri Supreme Court rules against him. They overturn decades of precedent, and they say, quote, the times are not now as they were when former decisions were made. And that looks final, but Scott says, no, I've got another avenue to pursue because the Constitution has a clause in Article 3 for diverse citizenship, which allows citizens of one state to sue citizens of another in federal court. So he says, okay, I've lost in state court. I'm now going to bring it in federal court because my owner, Sanford, lives in New York, but I'm living in Missouri. And so that's what gives rise to Dred Scott versus Sanford. And um, they, uh, the Supreme Court heard oral argument actually twice in this case, in 1856 and then in 1857. And these arguments, unlike the modern Supreme Court, went on for days and days. And there are basically three questions in the case. One is, should a black person such as Scott become a U.S. citizen and therefore able to sue in federal court? The second is, did Congress have the constitutional authority to ban slavery in the federal territory of the Missouri Compromise that, Heather, you were discussing from 1820? And then third, did Dred Scott's prolonged stay in both a free state and a free territory set him free? And the court on March 6th, 1857, answers these questions. It's basically a seven to two decision, but there are nine separate opinions in the case. Every single justice is writing an opinion, which is unlike many, many other cases, particularly by then. There were some at the founding, but at least in, once Chief Justice Marshall came into power, the court started moving toward more, you know, majority opinions and sometimes dissents. But here you've got this majority opinion authored by Chief Justice Taney, um, and then a main dissent written by Justice Benjamin Curtis. So, Heather, you know, with that first question, can a former slave or descendant of slaves be a citizen of the United States? What's the Chief Justice saying here? The Chief Justice, of course, answers no. This is when Chief Justice Taney issues his famous line that says that Black people had for more than a century been regarded as so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. But let's step back a little bit and look at what that means and where he's getting that from. Remember, when this decision comes down in 1857, those large enslavers who have monopolized the U.S. economy through the incredibly valuable cotton 
uh, trade are a really small minority. And they're trying to push this idea of a certain new kind of America across the country. And so when Tawny makes the argument that he makes in that decision, he is not word for word, but pretty close to picking up that message to Congress that I mentioned that Franklin Pierce wrote in December of 1855. He's saying, you know, forget all that stuff that you Republicans are talking about being, you know, America based on the Declaration of Independence and all that. We reject that. And and some enslavers at this point are literally standing on the floor of Congress and saying, we reject Thomas Jefferson's principle that all men are created equal. That was never what he really meant. Tawney is saying, not only do we agree with Franklin Pierce, but we are redefining what the United States is about. We are rewriting the Declaration of Independence. It is an extraordinary moment. And it's extraordinary in its own terms, just on the idea that basically racism is embedded in the most founding documents and our most lofty principles. But it's also kind of really should be self-defeating, right? Because, Heather, if they Dred Scott couldn't become a citizen, then he couldn't sue in federal court. He wouldn't have any diverse citizenship. And if he didn't have any diverse citizenship, then that's the end of the case. But Chief Justice Taney doesn't stop there. He then goes on to say, well, the whole question, does Congress have constitutional power to ban slavery in the federal territory, and says, no. How does he do that? So so that's a really interesting moment, because that's exactly right. Most people at the time thought when, when Scott first brought the suit for himself and his wife and his daughters, that he was going to win, because other people in Missouri had won under Missouri law. And then the when when the case went to the Supreme Court, that's what a lot of people said. Well, well, he's going to not have standing at the Supreme Court, so the Supreme Court's going to throw it back to Missouri, and he's either going to win or lose in Missouri. But Tawney decides to go ahead and decide the 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 turmoil between the North and the South himself with this decision, and the decision that he makes is very much in keeping with the ideology of the Southern Democrats in this period, the idea that democracy is about local voting, a theme that's going to run through American history really from the 1830s on. But it's really about local voting, and therefore the federal government doesn't have any power. But again, when you think about this moment, this is such an important decision because while we today tend to focus on what it meant for, for Mr. Scott and his family and for the American Black population, this is a national decision that says the federal government has no power to legislate in the territories, in this giant swath of land that is indigenous land that the United States has taken over really since 1803 and then 1848. And if that's the case... There's a logic here, and it's a logic that Abraham Lincoln's going to hammer on again and again and again. If an enslaver can carry even one enslaved person into that territory, that territory, by definition, is going to have to protect enslavement. Once that happens, it becomes a slave state. Once that giant territory becomes a whole bunch of slave states, the United States is going to become a slave state 
country based in enslaved labor. And the large Southern enslavers were very articulate about the fact that they believed this would make the United States a global leader in this new hierarchical society in which a few wealthy men ran everything and the rest of society, people that the elite enslavers called mudsills, simply worked for those elite people, creating value that those people could then suck up and funnel into their own pockets to drive human society forward through what they considered civilization. So this question that Tawney insisted on taking into his own pocket is about the fate of the world. And I want to ask a little bit um, from your perspective about Tawney's motivations for doing that. Um, so just to recap, Tawney's doing three things in the opinion. First, he says no black person can ever become a U.S. citizen. Second, he says that federal legislation that bans slavery in the territories is unconstitutional because it violates the Fifth Amendment's protection of property, which he believes includes slaves. And then third, he defers to the Missouri courts, that local governance, on the question of Dred Scott's freedom, sending Dred Scott back into slavery. So who is Tawney, um, Heather? It, you know, is, is this just unbridled racism it, it, you know, that's coming to fore, or what is this? Um, so, so before we do Tawney, I always have a, a moment for the Scott family who are so important to our history. They are so important to American history. But you know, they must have been so exhausted. This case went on for, what is it, more than 20 years. This was their life. They fought this. And I always feel so sorry for them. You know, they might have just wanted to, you know, sit by the fire a bit. And here they are changing the world. And I always sort of feel like, you know, we look at Tawny, it's kind of like, you know, Poor Mr. and Mrs. Scott and their kids probably just, you know, wanted to go for a walk in the evening. Anyway, um, Tawny is interesting. Oh, I'm just so glad you said that because actually I've been representing the family of Dred Scott before the Supreme Court in some cases that challenged the insular cases from the early 1900s. And they are just as remarkable a family today as I suspect they were back in the 1800s. And, and, you know, more power to them. But there must have come times when they were like, we just would like to take the day off. And not only, they haven't been able to take a day off in American history since the 1830s. I mean, we're still talking about them. <laughs> you know, anyway, Tawny is a really interesting and complicated man. Um, he is, in fact, I mean, a vicious racist. I'm sure you've read the, you know, a plenty on him and on the things he said and his decision is is appalling. But I think there was more to this decision for him. And that is that in this period, it is not clear what the United States is going to be. It is not clear that the United States is going to survive. That's not going to be decided until, uh, you know, several years after he writes the, the Dred Scott decision. And he had watched for a long time the country tear itself apart. He was born in 1777, right after the Declaration of Independence. And it looked like, in fact, the country might rend itself in two and cease to be this great experiment. And so part of it was, I think, that he really thought he could find a solution that nobody else could because he was well-versed in the law, and he was elderly, and he knew this was going to be his last shot. And so he took it. 
Yeah. So that's so I wanted to ask you because I looked at your most recent book, How the South Won the Civil War. And one of the things you say is that the mechanics of the decision seemed almost as corrupt as the ruling itself. Um, what are you talking about there? So, so you'd said that this decision was handed down in early March of 1857, and that's really important. And there's a time change in the 20th century that make people not understand how important that particular timing is. And it is this. James Buchanan had just been sworn into office as president in, in March of 1857. That's when we used to inaugurate our presidents. And that matters because James Buchanan was a bit of a compromise candidate in 1856. That is, the Republican Party ran John C. Fremont on a, on a, a, a platform of rolling back the power of these elite enslavers who had become known by then as the slave power, and people believed they were taking over the country. For the American Party, also known as the Know Nothing Party, former President Millard Fillmore ran, also on a platform that, among other things, said, I'm going to stop the slave power. James Buchanan ran as a Democrat, but he was from Pennsylvania. He wasn't a deep Southern Democrat. And he had been the foreign minister to England in the years where the churning up of the, all the problems in the 1850s had been been really roiling the country. So he kind of campaigned, or he, he didn't campaign in those days, people campaigned for him saying, he's not part of this, he's not related to the slave power, he's going to come in, he's going to make everything just hunky-dory. So he comes, he gets elected, but ominously, Fremont and Fillmore, who both say they're going to stop the slave power, get 400,000 more popular vote, uh, popular votes than Buchanan does. Still, they split the vote and Buchanan wins. When he gives his inaugural address, he says, you know, I know you're all getting really concerned about the sectional tensions, but not to worry because the Supreme Court is going to calm the situation down really soon because it's about to decide a case. And that case is going to establish when a territory can either include or exclude human enslavement. And then he says, to their decision, in common with all good citizens, I shall cheerfully submit whatever this may be. It is days later that the Supreme Court hands down... Two days. Okay. Two days after this inauguration. Okay, so two days later the Supreme Court hands down the Dred Scott decision. And the Dred Scott decision gives the elite enslavers everything they could ever want. Slavery cannot be excluded from all that massive land in the American West. That means they're going to get it. They're going to get the, the everything. They're going to get the Senate. They're going to get the House of Representatives. They're going to get the presidency. They're going to get control of the world if you want to look that far ahead, although that's something that's really limited for the most part to internal conversations in the American South. And it's really clear to people that Buchanan knew what the decision was going to be. And there are all these rumors about this at the time. Oh, he was in on it. Well, historians have proved, especially Gene Harvey Baker, proved that he did know what it was going to be. Worse, he put extraordinary pressure on a Northern Democrat who was sitting on the Supreme Court to switch to support the Southern uh, position so that it would not look like it was a sectional decision. And when that happens, people who had been like, ah, yeah, we don't really believe there was a conspiracy to take everything over. No, you people are just freaking out about nothing. When that happens, that's it. The fat is in the fire. It's 18, March of 1857. People are 
outraged not only over the Supreme Court working obviously with a political operative now in the White House, but also at the idea that they have essentially stolen the country. Thanks for listening to Courtside. You will have noticed that there aren't any ads on Courtside. That's because Courtside is entirely listener-supported. You can support the show at neilkatyal.substack.com and come back next week. Stop over at neilkatyal.substack.com to support the show, and there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and some bonus material. And so you can sign up so you don't miss anything. So, Heather, tell me a little bit about how the North and South reacted to the decision. It's a really interesting moment because Southern enslavers are like, yeah, we were right. We told you all along we were right, that this nation was based on the idea of human enslavement. It was based on the idea that some people are better than others. It's always what the country has been about. Tawny is right. Franklin Pierce was right. Our rewriting of American history is right. And anybody who disagrees with that is destroying America because they won't listen to the the decision of the Supreme Court. Northerners, on the other hand, including people like Abraham Lincoln, say, wait a minute, this country was founded on the Declaration of Independence, on the idea that everybody is created equal. We're not the radicals who are trying to overturn this country. You're the radicals who are trying to overturn this country. And my favorite quotation about the reaction to the Dred Scott decision, people are outraged. The newspapers are, are all over this. You can't do this. You've, there's a cabal that's taken over the Supreme Court. My favorite quotation comes from Horace Greeley, who's the editor of the New York Daily Tribune, in which he said that the decision was, and I quote, entitled to just so much moral weight as would be the judgment of a majority of those congregated in any Washington barroom. <laughs> Which in these days, you know, in Washington barrooms, they are not drinking shivis, right? So he is basically saying the Supreme Court is a bunch of drunks in a gutter, basically. One of the other reactions that I have always been taken with is that of Frederick Douglass. So Douglass gives a lecture soon after the decision, and he says, quote, my hopes were never brighter than now, brighter than now. And he says the decision is a means of keeping the nation awake on the subject. And particularly given your historical lens, what do you take away from Douglas's extraordinary display of hope. Um, in that same lecture, I know he said, Judge Tawney can do many things, but he cannot perform impossibilities. He cannot change the essential nature of things, making evil good and good evil. Um, to me, I'm so inspired by this moment of him finding the light at a time of incredible darkness. I'd love your reactions. Frederick Douglass, of course, was a genius, and he got what this moment meant. And, and he is one of the lights to which I look in, in my own work and also in that period, because he was in many ways um, a, a compatriot of Abraham Lincoln, if you will, in the way they thought about the world. So I think what Douglass is saying at that point is twofold. The first is what, what you mentioned second. And that is that he is saying, you cannot rewrite history. 
Our history is based on the principle that all men are created equal. And he talks about, hey, what is to the slave is the 4th of July. You know, he talks about women being excluded. He recognizes that that principle has never been fully embraced. But he recognizes that as a principle, it is foundational. And he talks about that for all of his life. He talks about the difference between that principle and the way that it plays out. And he is so lyrical about that. He's a brilliant writer, among other things. But he also has very clear vision. The other piece that you mentioned first and that Lincoln also talks about a lot, and one of the things I try and talk about a lot, is that what Douglas is articulating is the same thing that Lincoln articulated in the House Divided speech, and that is that this overturning of what the principles of the United States were founded to be did not happen overnight. It happened gradually. It's the whole point of the House Divided speech, the idea that, you know, Franklin and James and Stephen, that's Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan and Stephen Douglas and Roger Tawney is the, is the fourth carpenter in that speech, that they, they moved little pieces at a time and people weren't watching to see those little pieces moving. And then all of a sudden we look and there's the edifice of a house there. And you have to recognize that this has been a concerted plan. And, and once people see that, they know what to fight. And I think that's what Douglas is articulating there, that, that once people saw the Dred Scott decision, they recognized that all these people who had been yelling since the 1820s about the extension of human enslavement were not conspiracy theorists. They were not, you know, coming up with something that wasn't happening, that this was real and that people would fight back against it. And of course, Douglas was absolutely right. This is March of 1857. And within about four years, there's going to be the start of a civil war to answer these central questions, not only of human enslavement, but about what the United States is supposed to be and what the relationship of the government is to the citizens who live in it. And does Dred Scott create the Civil War? I think Dred Scott is, if you will pardon the allusion to the House Divided speech, the final nail. Um, or at least, not the final nail, one of the final nails. Because Dred Scott's 57, by then people are really hot under the collar. And then in 58, among other things, you're going to get the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And in those Lincoln-Douglas debates, Lincoln really articulates in a way that he had not before what this fight is all about. And then, of course, we're going to get the election and, and you know, there's many other little pieces there. But Dred Scott is the, the last major piece before the Lincoln-Douglas debates and then, of course, before the election of 1860. So I want to take you beyond Red Scott and move more into contemporary events, because to me, Heather, you are very much like Frederick Douglass in that you do get what the current moment is about, and you get it in part informed by your view of American history, which is so unique. And in your Substack newsletter and the podcast you're doing with Joanne Freeman, you use history as a vehicle of sorts, allowing you to make sense of current events. So could you do that for us a little bit with Dred Scott? Um, does Dred Scott help us understand anything about our current moments? Oh, I think it does. But but I, I just want to, to say something there. 
I don't think I'm doing anything unique at all. I think we have just established that I'm following in the footsteps of the real grades. What's that statement about how we stand on the shoulders of giants? If I have a way of looking at the world, it's thanks to people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And once you understand that the that at certain moments in our history, we have profound struggles between people who want to create a world in which some people are better than others. In contrast, there are people who believe that we are all created equal and we should be treated equally before the law and have the right to a say in our government, even if those principles have never been fully realized in the United States. Once you see that as a, a, as a fundamental struggle that crops up in our history, an awful lot of what we see around us, especially in a moment that looks so much like the 1850s, becomes extraordinarily clear. So Do the Dobbs decision, for example, how do you look at the Dobbs decision, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, that overturned the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973 and not see that it looks like the similar kind of blindsiding that people in, the, in 1857 believed that they had with the Dred Scott decision? a decision that overturned what had been long-standing settled law, a decision that certainly looked as if it was corrupt because of the leaks that had come out both about the Dobbs decision, but before that about the Hobby Lobby case, and a decision that was obviously overtly political in the same way that the Dred Scott decision was. I mean, I, I remember looking at the Dobbs decision in two ways. The, the first way, it, when I first heard about it, I was actually cleaning mouse poop out of a farmhouse. And that's very fitting. Well, that's just it. And, and I thought, isn't that interesting? Because I'm listening to this and thinking there are people who think that this is all I should be doing with my life. And the second way I thought about it was Dred Scott. And that's why I love your Substack newsletter so much. Within days of the Dobbs leak, even before the decision came out, you wrote this piece basically comparing the two. And that's one of the things I find in your Substack that's so interesting. You've got these fascinating historical tidbits all throughout them. And I do want to ask you before you go, um, you know, how did you come up with this project of your newsletter? And who were you writing for? And what motivated you to do it? I didn't come up with it at all. Um, it, it, Came, it grew very organically as people asked me questions on what was then a Facebook page that had about 22,000 followers. I started to write, um, as I did about once a week, about the letter from Adam Schiff, who was the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, to then acting director of national intelligence under uh, Donald Trump, explicitly articulating that they knew, that Schiff knew there had been a whistleblower and that the House Intelligence Committee should have gotten that information and had not. And I recognize that that was an accusation on the part of the legislative branch that a member of the executive branch had committed an explicit crime. And once I started, once I wrote about that, people started asking tons of questions and I just started asking questions and it has grown really organically since then. I did not ever intend, first of all, to do it, but I was did not intend to try and cover all of American news, which is apparently where I am right now. And it's grown way <laughs> too big. No, you have 1.1 million subscribers. Um, and, you know, do you have a thought as to why you're providing something that the 
current news media environment doesn't provide at all. Um, what do you think that is? I think it's two, I think it's threefold. I think one is that I explain I, I explain the history, um, and and that's helpful because all I'm trying to do is figure it out myself. Like what's going on? So, for example, when I talk about the G7. I always explain what the G7 is because who remembers that? You know, you're doing the laundry, your car's broken down, whatever. Um, I also explain everything every night. The you know, I even often explain the political parties to the presidents. Again, not because people are stupid, but because this is the water I swim in, and I recognize that so often when I'm at a lecture in a field I don't know anything about. They're talking a game of inside baseball, and maybe I've heard of the stuff. By the time I remember what it is, they're onto another topic, and I just feel lost all the time. So I think that's a large part of it. But I also think the other piece is that, I, I, first of all, I, I try not to be hysterical about anything. I try to um, be calm and to be bipartisan or nonpartisan. I guess is a better way to put it, mm -hmm. because what I'm really interested in is the long term view of this era from the perspective of history. So I always, when I sit down to write, I always say in 150 years, what that happened today is going to turn out to be important. And what that means is a lot of the noise gets stripped away. And I think people like that. Um, they like understanding the deeper dives into, recently I did cluster munitions and there's actually a body of work on that, and I take the time to learn about it, even if it's not in my field. But I think they also like that they don't have to be constantly reacting to, you know, what's the next flashing light. Well, it's such a gift for all of us. And um, if any of my listeners needed to know whether to, list, to subscribe to your Substack, boy, the last half hour has explained exactly why they must do so immediately. Um, this was so extraordinary. You're such a deep thinker and analyst um, of these moments. And you've given me, and I've, as I said, I've taught this case 20 times, so much new information and a way to think about it. So I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And I'm, I'm the same. I said yes to this because you're what got me through figuring out all what was happening in the the Trump administration. Your videos on, uh, was it Instagram or Twitter, <laughs> We, we wouldn't miss. So, in fact, I was saying to, to Neil that I actually fangirled on him in Washington years ago, and he doesn't remember it. So, so you know, I was there first. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm as fanboy as possible um, uh, for you. So thank you again, Heather, um, and can't wait to read your newsletter tonight. Terrific. Thank you very much. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show, and there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and bonus material, and you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilcatial.substack.com, N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack.com. The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hollow and Ronnie Barhadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. This is Neil Katyal. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week.